More Than Books, episode 45. I'm Sierra and... I'm Emily. And we are here today in this fine month of April, thank God it's spring, talking about literary hoaxes. Because as we know, the first of April is the Day of Fools. So let's talk about some things that might have fooled you. For my topic... I chose one of the first great satirical works, and it is called A Modest Proposal for Preventing the Children of Poor People from Being a Burden to Their Parents or Country and for Making Them Beneficial to the Public by Jonathan Swift in 1729. Isn't this the guy that wrote Gulliver's Travels? Just maybe. What an interesting departure from his other works. Actually, surprisingly enough, he wrote several articles like these. This was just the one that uh, had the biggest outrage. And I've chosen an interesting topic. Might be a little more controversial than yours. (laughs) But the title of this one is called Nazdij, the not-so-real Navajo. And we are following in this lovely adventure the exploits of an author, Timothy Barris, who started his career off with writing several books of gay leather porn and sadomasochistic novels. Uh, Unfortunately, or fortunately for the audience, Essentially, those novels did not get the kind of exposure that he desired, so he made up the persona of a Navajo man whose son died of fetal alcohol syndrome, and bam, he became a bestseller. So for anyone who's unfamiliar with it, A Modest Proposal, as it's more commonly called, is a satirical, basically pamphlet that Swift authored to kind of bring awareness to the plight of the Irish at the time and just the fact that they were having major issues with poverty and, you know, it was just really widespread. I mean, there was like people dying in the streets. It was not great. Basically what he did was he wrote this pamphlet that he then had distributed anonymously he basically was like so here's this problem of dying beggars in the street and then in this kind of serious methodical logical and statistical manner he proposed the solution selling the one-year-old babes of begging mothers to then become food for the rich and wealthy. So in essence, cannibalism. And he even goes to great details to emphasize 
how much it would help the families and how much, you know, the rich would be, you know, enjoying these great meals of, you know, in comparison to, you know, just regular beef and swine. And so he basically has this whole thing. And like one of the lines is, a young, healthy child, well-nursed, is at a year old a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked, or boiled, and I make no doubt that it will equally serve in a ragu type of French stew. And that is actually, I believe, about the third paragraph of this. So it starts out with this narrative that kind of is like, you know, oh, the poor women in the streets with their, you know, dying children... And then he's like, let me propose a solution. And then, boom, that line drops. And you're just like, what am I reading? What did I get myself into? The fact that he was allowed to publish an entire pamphlet on that is hilarious. And the fact that it's now deemed one of the greatest satirical works and is taught in most modern high schools as such is kind of interesting as well. But the whole thing, I mean, is said in just this very serious tone, this very, like, you know, methodical kind of tone and how he lays it out. So and more so in a journalistic style. Yeah. Prose, yeah. It's kind of like an official opinion piece almost, mm. where um, this would be an actual journalist who's paid to write, you know, and it's not just like a general person of the public. Um, mm. So, and the funny thing about this is that initially, first was released, the wealthy class, the majority of the wealthy class, the people who got it first, the people who read it first, they actually kind of got it and they kind of laughed and they kind of had a little chuckle about it. Going so far as to him receiving a letter from one of his close friends saying, I did immediately propose it to Lady Bathurst as your advice, particularly for her last boy, which was born the plumpest, finest thing that could be seen. But she fell in a passion and bid me send you word that she would not follow your direction, but that she would breed him up to be a parson and he should live upon the fat of the land or a lawyer. And then instead of being eaten himself, he should devour others." And that's just a snippet of the reply from Lord Bathurst. But when news did reach the general public about what had been published, what was being said, they took it as reality. And they were all just in a panic. A lot of people did not like the fact that at times he compared Irish women to cattle. Um, he was even calling them breeders. It was just... He even did compare them to basically being considered like prized uh, breeding mares for their husband. And that would somehow bring an end to domestic violence was how he kind of phrased it because they wouldn't want to, you know, punch or kick um, their wives anymore for fear of miscarriage now that they would be getting money for the kid. It's all it's all done very well. But if you go into a mindset of someone who doesn't have the education that we have today who wouldn't have known not to always believe what's written or that you know people can write in a satirical manner 
there were women who were just terrified. They were like, oh my God, are my kids going to become food? (laughs) Yeah, so that was pretty much the hoax was that he had people believing that there was this person out there that believed that, you know, children were only meant to be a commodity and that was very much a cultural shock because a lot of the people who were living in poverty were devout Catholics at the time. So just the whole thing just is kind of just crazy to think about. Well, you know how the Catholics are about birth control. He, he actually, actually, no. Um, the thing is, is that he actually does point that out. Like in his first... And part of his his thing, he's talking about, you know, how many people are, how many supposed people are going around who are in poverty and impoverished. And he says it's like somewhere close to like 100,000. And like every single time he talks about them, he's talking about like how they don't want to like abort them or anything. They'd rather go into poverty. They'd rather find other means. He was, if I remember correctly, he was a Catholic himself, but don't quote me on that. Because at one point he does end up being the priest at a, at, a, at a church. He gets a parish, which wasn't what he actually wanted, but he gets a parish in Ireland. I mean, this thing talks about predominantly the poverty thing, but it also talks about like the issues of the fact that at the time it was a Catholic country being ruled by papists and... Then there's talk about, like, abortion and miscarriages, and he he really does get very political in this. But again, it's just, it's all very methodically thought out. He even, like, breaks out statistics at points to prove his (laughs) point, and it's just this... I mean, if I was a woman in poverty, and I had heard about this, and I read it, if I could read, or someone read it to me... I would legit think that there was some evil mastermind sitting in a castle with, like, some weird dungeon, like, just wanting to eat my kids. So, yeah, and um, his hoax didn't last for long. Obviously, people came to his defense, such as um, the guy who wrote the letter, Lord Bathurst. But it did have people, people genuinely scared for a while. All right, so for Mr. Timothy Barris, uh, he created a fake alter ego called known as Nazdij. I'm totally probably butchering it, but who knows how he came up with it? <laughs> anyway, so in 1999, he wrote an essay called The Blood Runs Like a River Through My Dreams, and it ran in the June 1999 issue of Esquire, and quickly became a National Magazine Award finalist that year and garnered enough attention to get Houghton Mifflin to make it a book. After this, it was so successful that he went on to publish two more award-winning memoirs. And it wasn't until about seven years later that the LA Weekly produced an investigative piece blowing the whistle on Barris's shady operation. Seven years. Seven years. How did he avoid authors' talks or anything like that? Like, that's what really 
should have gotten him was like you know going to like bookstores and giving talks and things like that yeah just opening his mouth yeah (laughs) he eventually did fess up and he you know sort of complained in his confession he complained that oh no one ever took a notice of his previous books or book proposals until he created you know the character of Nastij a stereotype of you know not only you know Navajo but also you know American Indian characters in a lot of books and television shows you know the downtrodden destitute figure that's an alcoholic and uh, this is a quote uh, that he, he told Esquire in 2000, 2006. I never really thought River would ever be printed, much less cause the commotion it did. However, a lot of the events in the book and essay do parallel some things that actually happened in his personal history, or at least that he claims to mirror things in his real life. Uh, He claims that at 18, he did find an abandoned Chippewa baby and took care of it for three months. And it is also said that his wife, Tina, will not travel anywhere without their dog named Navajo, even going as far to wearing dark sunglasses to pretend Navajo is her is her seeing eye dog. Her vision is fine. And in the book, she's, you know, his wife is blind. And uh, essentially, after his cover was blown, uh, he became as impoverished as the bogus character that he created. I mean, it maybe took seven months for them to figure out who wrote Amada's proposal after it was anonymously published and all that stuff. But then like seven years to figure out this guy was not who he said he was. In modern day. I mean, the internet was around. No, not not to, it was like, it wasn't discovered till around like 2006, 2007, so definitely not at the level that it is today. Yeah, and you know, people didn't have their phones and weren't recording his book signings or anything like that. But uh, yeah, let's talk about a very famous hoax, and it was based on a novel and it was a, a radio dramatization of the novel, but still, as it's based on you know a book, mm-hmm. we're gonna count it. Yeah, one of the biggest literary hoaxes in recent history. Yes, we are specifically talking about the War of the Worlds, the nineteen thirty eight radio drama. Yes, by Orson Welles was the one who was producing the radio show, but it was H.G. Wells who wrote the book. And Orson Wells is a no relative to H.G. Wells. So uh, it was a one-hour program that began with the theme music for the Mercury Theater on Air and an announcement that the evening show was an adaptation of The War of the Worlds which I'm guessing a lot of people did not catch. It wasn't that they didn't catch it, but what happened was at that time, the radio was a trusted source for news, for everything. I mean, television was not a thing yet. 
people would listen to presidential debates. They would get their news. They would get their warnings. Um, during the polio outbreak a couple of years before, children were getting schooled over the radio. So there was a lot of trust that went into that. And so when people started hearing these fake news announcements and they came with all these like realistic sounds and, you know, they were drumming on tables to like mimic, you know, people like knocking on doors and being like, hey, you know, things are happening. So that's really part of where all of that fell was that, you know, people just got caught up in it. And it began with Orson Welles reading a prologue, which was uh, closely based on the opening of the story. But in the adaptation, they moved the story's telling to 1939. And it was following this when, you know, the broadcast that, you know, spurred all the commotion started. The broadcast was presented as a typical evening of radio programming being interrupted by a series of news bulletins. Orson Welles went on record saying that, you know, that was very much thrown together last minute. They didn't rehearse it very much in advance. He was not expecting to become this overnight sensation. Um, He especially was not expecting the death threats that happened shortly thereafter. So it's just, it's amazing. They literally adapted it in that fashion because they didn't have time to create this whole play or scenario. So their solution was to do these news bulletins. So beyond the sort of breaking news style um, of storytelling employed, you know, during the first half of the program, uh, the illusion was furthered because uh, Mercury Theatre on Air was a sustaining program without commercial interruptions. The first break in the drama came after martial war machines were described as devastating New York City. Popular legend holds that some of the radio audience may have been listening to the Chase and Sanborn Hour with Edgar Bergen and tuned in to the War of the Worlds during a musical interlude, thereby missing the clear introduction indicating that the show was a work of science fiction. In the days after the adaptation, there was obviously a lot of widespread outrage, not only expressed in the media, but in the audience as well. One of the interesting things about the public reaction and the reaction to this in general was that the producer, John Hausman, noticed that at about 8.32 p.m., the CBS supervisor, Davison Taylor, received a telephone call in the control room and that Taylor left the studio and returned four minutes later, quote-unquote, pale as death, as he had been ordered to interrupt the War of the Worlds broadcast immediately with an announcement of the program's fictional contents. And that announcement actually came, uh, reportedly, a minute away from its first scheduled break. So it hadn't even finished broadcasting. Which is hilarious. 
Um, I, I think that, you know, had they not specified that, I think it would have been pretty clear once they entered the second half of the show, because the, the structure of the drama actually changed. So the second half, the, the second half of the show shifts to a conventional radio drama format, uh, that follows a survivor, which is also played by Wells, dealing with the aftermath of the invasion and then the ongoing Martian occupation of Earth. Yeah, it's just amazing how having really good actors and having a medium that is considered a trusted source can just lead to absolute mayhem. Yeah, um, there was, following the airing of the World of Worlds, there was an outcry against the broadcasters and call for regulation by the Federal Communications Commissions. I think it's a bit much. Technically, yes, but at the same time, I mean, back then there weren't really a whole lot of regulations. Very true. So, I mean, this was one of the starts of it. You know, it did bring up, you know, good conversations. As well as launching Orson Welles' career. He became a well-known actor, director, screenwriter, and producer. And he is considered to be one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. He went on, you know, to direct... um, He went on to direct A Lady from Shanghai, Touch of Evil, The Tribal... The Trial, Chimes at Midnight, F for for Fake, and probably a very well-known film, even to this day, Citizen Kane. I think this episode covers the trifecta. We've got cannibalism, racism, and aliens. The perfect trifecta for a Sunday afternoon. All right, thank you for joining us for this rather fraudulent episode of More Than Books podcast. I'm Sierra. And I'm Emily. And this was episode 46. Oops, I lied. I meant 45. We'll see you next time. Ciao. (laughs)